You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 256. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, Sanhaisan! Woohoo! Happy New Year! Yeah, you too. First show for this year. First episode. That's right. Let's put 2020 behind us. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I think it's yeah, not a bad yeah. idea. No, 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 no. Yeah. So we, we've, we're on uh, yet another trip around the sun. So uh, I think it's reason to celebrate. Things are looking up um, in terms of handling the pandemic. More on that later. <laughs> uh, we will talk about a couple of uh, things. Well, as our listeners might imagine this has been a bit of a slow week uh which always happens at the end of the year mm-hmm. i'm sure we can feel that's, this time <laughs> that's not usually not a problem uh, yeah with some <laughs> with some some right. casual chatter yeah I, I wanted to make a follow-up all right away uh, uh here um about something i talked about two weeks ago which mm. was the, the the swedish king and uh, oh yeah his his talks and when i talked about that i mentioned that there it, there were problems well there were limitations with the Swedish legal system for the government to put in very strict um, measures and, and, and things. And so they, I think they listened to the show mm-hmm. because okay. now there's, it's been announced that there will be uh, a temporary pandemic law uh, num- for a number of months, half a year or so. I'm not quite up to the details. That, we, that it's sort of an emergency law that may not be strictly consti- constitutional, but they got it through anyway. And so, so that's uh, interesting. They're going to, to uh, be able, the government will be able to um, stop pub- public gatherings to some extent, public events. They can uh, even close uh, shops and stuff, things that the rest of the world have been doing all along. <laughs> and But as I said two weeks ago, uh, this is on the border of what you can do mm-hmm. in, in Sweden. So at the same time, they are working on changing the fundamental laws as they're known. And uh, according to legal experts, or at least one of them, this new change will not be able to be in place until 2026. So, um, uh, be- because you need an, an election in you between. You need two elections. Yeah, well, you need an election. No, ah, no, you okay. need, sorry, you need one election, two different governments. So, two parliaments, yes. two different parliaments yes. have to have to vote on it. Okay. Right. Which is good. I mean, in a way. Yeah, and we have elections every four years. So, that's why. And the next election isn't until 2022. Mm. So, uh, you can do then and then, well, I don't know. It'll be interesting. It's much. It's it's much much better to have a, a fundamental law that that is difficult to change. Yes. Than something like ours here in Hungary that uh, since it was introduced back in in twenty eleven by the right. the Orbán government, it has been amended at least ten times. I wow. think it's already at eleven. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you you would you would actually want to have some stability when it comes to the legal foundations of how, how a country is governed. Yes. And um yeah. So we do have that, but the problem is that when you need to do something very urgently and the yeah the constitution or the fundamental law it prohibits it, then you have a problem. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but uh, so much for um, for Sweden uh, doing it completely differently and just recommending things to people and people going along with it, right? Yeah. So the politicians are starting to realize that it's probably not working the way they imagined it would. Right. So, so maybe for the next... Maybe for the next pandemic, we'll be ready legally. Yeah, but it's understandable. The world has not seen anything like this since probably the Second World War. Uh, so uh, that such a, a long period of crisis is difficult to handle psychologically and politically and every and in every aspect of our lives. Right, so and we didn't, Sweden didn't get too much involved in the second world war or the first world war we didn't really yeah do anything that's right 
since uh, very early 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what the last time we, we were in uh, at war with anyone. Well, your nation did did uh, your fair share of uh, doing war in the Middle Ages, right? So um, we're still recovering from that. The... Yes, that's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so even in the middle of Europe, yeah. uh, those I, guys I sti- were I, very. Active. I think we're still <laughs> technically at war with San Marino. Are you? Because they forgot to. They, yeah, and I, I think most of us are because San Marino, such a small little city nation, that uh, they were. Somebody forgot to invite them to the peace treaty, so they're still at war with everybody. Okay, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Never mind. But but you seem to be a peaceful lot. So uh, yeah, yeah, good. No, no, no wonder a lot of people want to move up there. Okay, what else has happened apart from us? I hear moving? you have been uh, unfaithful. I'm almost said you you've been appearing without me somewhere. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry about that. I'm 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 sorry I had to leave you behind. No, it was um I think I'm I I mentioned that on the last episode that I would be giving a talk at uh Monterey County Skepticam 2021 thanks to Susan Gerbic who invited me to give the talk online of course. And I gave the opening talk which was quite an honor to do and uh, I thought the most fitting topic would be advocating international collaboration and why it's important how it is necessary. You probably remember that a couple of years ago I did did a similar uh, talk at Skepticum in Manchester uh, before QED. Yes you did yeah. And uh, I tried to improve on that a little bit and yeah it was a um, bit more than half an hour long and uh, there were several of us, uh, some of whom I, I didn't even know before. Uh, but there was, of course, Richard Saunders giving a talk as well. Yeah. And uh, he gave a very interesting talk on how to make a good podcast. And who else would be suitable to talk right, about that, right? right? right, right. So he does such a brilliant job producing The Skeptic Zone. And um, unfortunately, I couldn't listen to uh, the entire talk real time but uh, thankfully the the whole seven hour long video is available now on the about time youtube channel so and i could actually listen to it and others as well all right we will put that in the show notes yeah 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 of course he he gave such a good advice such good advice on how to do it that i had the feeling i wanted to start a podcast uh, <laughs> very so. good and then I realized I, I already had done that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think we could still learn from uh, his suggestions and his recommendations. But I think with all that out of the way, again, Happy New Year, everyone. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Just, both, of, both of us are drinking wine while doing the podcast. Of course, this is not not a real occupation for for, for either of us. So we are alive, yes, right? absolutely. So who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Here's to... Uh, better much better year here here in 2021 and on that note let's uh crack on with the show and even in the absence of onika which we really hope will not last long too long well as long as she needs it will but um we try not to bother her too much but occasionally we check in with her and uh, it looks like she's enjoying her new motherhood and um yeah, that's that's an amazing thing. Oh, by the way, my sister gave birth as well mm. on the thirty first of December, the last day of twenty twenty. That's fantastic. Does that count as a skeptic baby as well? Well, on her father's side, I think she does count as a skeptic baby. On her mother's side, who's my sister, not necessarily, but she tends to change her mind occasionally about things. Um, some of them was my working and some of them uh her her partners mm-hmm. <laughs> good uh who's who's definitely a skeptic I, I, so I, yeah <laughs> i see that uncle andras has a very important task here in in the upbringing of this new yes. baby yeah. yes i do good luck i i do i i have a another niece who's already 19 years old and uh the whole family keeps uh mocking me for being her master <laughs> and uh in a way that some who are more sci-fi and star wars savvy they tend to call her my padawan (laughs) and she's she's quite quite a skeptic yeah so i'm proud of her okay but (laughs) uh i deviated slightly from from the original goal uh here which is introducing this week in skepticism 
Even in the absence of Onika, we are doing this. And uh, this week we celebrate the birthday of British naturalist, explorer, social activist, author and illustrator Alfred Russell Wallace, who was born on the 8th of January 1823 in the Welsh town of, and I'll try to pronounce it, (laughs) Lombardoch. I don't know, something like that. Right. But it's in Wales. And obviously he's most well-known for being a co-discoverer of natural selection, right? Out in the wild, in the Amazon River Basin, and then the Malay Archipelago, he was doing a lot of observations, and uh, he came up uh, with with a solution to the problem that he has had already been pondering with, and that is the transmutation of species and the mechanism for that. And he brought a, a letter, not a very long one, to Charles Darwin, um, explaining his ideas to him. And then Darwin got Darwin panicked, <laughs> of course, because Shit. he had been working on on that for twenty years. <laughs> and then the guy comes up. And he 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 had been working on a book of hundreds of lo- uh, of pages. And then the guy says, uh, I think it was a seven pages long letter or something, <laughs> and uh, and explains the same thing. Basically, he tweeted about it. Yes. <laughs> So, but later, and it, it was quite nice, I think the dynamics and that kind of collegial relation that they had was very nice. And they co-published a paper with uh, with Darwin in 1858. Uh, and that really pushed Darwin into writing his theory up. And that resulted in the origin of species by means of natural selection. And they didn't know each other before, right? They, I think they knew about each other. Yeah. They, I, but they, they had probably not before. met. No, 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 no. So this, this brought them together yeah. uh, in a way. So I'm not well-versed enough in his uh, biography, but I know a couple of things about him that are absolutely amazing. First of all, he's widely considered uh, the father of uh, biogeography, which uh, deals with uh, the distribution of uh, different species based on the geographical environment. And uh, there is a, a faunal divide as well that is called the the Wallace Line in uh, Southeast Asia. And that's uh, the divide between species originating in Australasia uh, and Asia. So that's an amazing find of his. And um, other things that are not very well known about him is that he was the first to seriously ponder on the idea of life outside of our planet Ooh. in 1904. Exobiology. He's, exactly. So he's also considered a founder of exobiology. Ooh. And... Um, he was really attracted to uh, radical or just unconventional ideas, including, of course, those of transmutation of species, which was uh, already discussed at the time, but it was not widely accepted. Scientists of the time had been really critical about the idea of, of the transmutation of species. So ultimately the basis of evolution but he supported it probably because it was radical and it was new uh and when he came up with a with a a mechanism to to explain that he was euphoric about it and quite understandably so but on the other hand he was drawn to a couple of weird ideas as well including phrenology Mm. he was very enthusiastic about phrenology for for those of our listeners who don't know it's the study of cranial features to to heads explain uh personality types and 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 different personality traits and he was very enthusiastic about animal magnetism as well (laughs) do you know what it's what, what the other other name for it is uh no i don't it's uh, mesmerism. Mesmerism. Yeah, okay. That I've heard about. Yes. But that's another guy, yeah. right? That's, so, uh, that's named after uh, another guy. Mesmer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I think, Austrian. Austrian, probably not Germany. I think I think it was Austrian. Mm-hmm. And that uh, had a connection with him being a believer in a non-material origin of the human soul. And obviously, as a result of that, he was an avid spiritualist. He had a couple of uh, clashes with critics of spiritualism, especially because that was the the Victorian era. So he obviously was exposed to a lot of those seances and, and that kind of stuff. And that interest of his in spiritualism almost cost him his civil pension that Darwin proposed for him. 
Wow. Because he had always been financially he had he had always been suffering and and uh, and he was always broke and then darwin towards the end of of his life i mean darwin's life proposed a, a pension for him and towards the end of uh, his life uh, wallace was in a much better position financially speaking but there are two more very interesting things about his interests and the, the things that he did first of all he devised a way to demonstrate the curvature of larger water services in response to a wager offered by a flat earth believer, a flat earther. Really? In 1870, yes. So he came up with a a very brilliant idea and um, he even received the wager. But then the guy who offered it, John Hampton, he basically uh, drew out of this uh, somehow and even sued Wallace and launched a campaign against him. But he did demonstrate it, and uh, he he did win that money, which was quite quite a lot of money back then, five hundred pounds. Back then, it was a, a great sum, and I, as I mentioned, he had always been broke, so it, <laughs> it, it it had meant a lot to him. But another thing, which is quite uh, fitting to to these days, is that. Um, when in the 1880s there was a, a smallpox vaccination campaign, which which made uh, smallpox vaccination basically um, mandatory in England, he ended up turning against the idea of the, okay. the the smallpox vaccinations because he did not trust the establishment, which which goes quite well with his character being drawn to uh, radical and anti-establishment ideas. And uh, he found a couple of uh, people who had used a little bit baseless assumptions and claims about uh, how how the smallpox vaccine works. But the, the, the basic thing was that the germ theory was not a big thing. The germ theory had just been out. It was a radical new thing and a lot of people did not believe it still. No. But that doesn't change the fact that he was basically an anti-vax guy uh, in the 1880s. Ooh, more about that later on this uh, episode. Yeah, more about that later. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is this is the guy that we are celebrating the birthday of, Alfred Russell Wallace. So, with those little pieces of history, I think we are about to move on to poking the Pope, aren't we? Yes. Well, Frankie is getting on in years. He turned uh, 84 on the 17th of December. So he's not, um, you know, he's he's out of high school, if you put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from a few uh, weird interests in uh, half-naked ladies, but yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. (laughs) As we have mentioned a couple of times, some some people maybe shouldn't get Instagram. But anyway, he he had to cancel New Year's uh, mass due to... Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this word in English. I know what it is, but but I didn't know the uh, the English um, word for it. Sciatica. Do you know what that is, Andros? Yeah, I, I know it in Hungarian. Um, it's called ischias, but I, I wouldn't be able to explain it you know, or what it means. Does it have to do with something with uh, the sciatic nerve or something? Okay, right. Okay, so it's when, when you have a, a, a pain that radiates from your lower back down through the sciatic nerve yeah. and i didn't know that was the name for it in english either to the lower part of the body so so it's basically a very common uh pain so he had to cancel that but he did come back on the 3rd of january to deliver the angelus prayers that is every sunday so he he's back on his feet again mm-hmm. but uh, it tells the story about uh, this guy i mean he's not he, he he will not probably die tomorrow but he's still working and as an 84-year-old, maybe he's starting to look at his retirement plans or yeah. whatever. Uh, and uh, he Retirement? Are you, are you suggesting that there will be two retired popes? No, well, no, 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 no. Popes no, usually happen. are forced to retire. Uh, they are called home to Papa, the bigger Papa in the sky, and then they have to, <laughs> to uh, stop working. But uh, the reason I bring it up is that he did actually accept... Um, the retirement of yet another Benedict Cardinal uh, on the 4th of January. Um, And that's interesting because that means he's building, he's continuing to skew the Cardinal electorate to be more his people than his predecessors' people. And I'm afraid I'm very embarrassed that I can't 
pronounce this guy's last name. He's called uh, John New, N J U E. So New or Newy. I I don't know. He's from Kenya, and my I, I don't even know what language that is. So so I'm I'm afraid I don't know how to say that. But he is only uh, 76 this cardinal and at the age of 75 you are required by custom i don't know how how much of a rule it is but usually you hand over your letter of re- resignation to to the pope who normally or very often refuses it and say no no you stay on a bit another 15 years but this guy had to go which means there are now even more of a of a majority in in the electorate that was appointed by uh, by francis interesting this john new guy uh, i'm sorry i can't say that name without laughing but new 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 uh, anyway he has apparently not unknown birthday at least wikipedia only says that he's b- born in 1944 sometime but he has a coat of arms which is very um not all the cardinals have that so i'm i'm very intrigued i have to read up on this guy it seems like an interesting p- person anyway he's now away uh, from the cardinals and then there is another retired bishop not a cardinal this time and that's another interesting story because there is uh, this Archbishop Tadeusz Kondrusiewicz, something like that, I guess. He is f- uh, from Belarus mm-hmm. and he went uh, on a visit to Poland in August. And then he, and when he, while he was there, he called for Lukashenko to resign as president of Belarus. Mm-hmm. That meant that he was not allowed to go back into Belarus even though he is of that nation. So that, that says something about Lukashenko. You, you don't uh, talk badly about the president there, then you are not allowed to go back home anymore. What happened recently was that an emissary from, uh, from the Vatican, from Francis, visited with Lukashenko. Uh, and following that visit, the Vatican announced that uh, Kondrusievich has resigned and that resignation had also been accepted by Francis. And then uh, this guy that I keep struggling with, with uh, pronouncing his name, Kondrusievich, <laughs> could go back home. So that poses the question, did Lukashenko force Francis to retire this archbishop? And did then Francis cave for this uh, dictator and say, okay, this is the only way to do this. Mm. We will let him resign. And then will you please let him go back home? And, and Lukashenko said, okay. That, I don't know. I think Francis should stand up against dictators in, in a more firm way. I don't, of course, know exactly if that was what happened, but it seems very likely wow. to me. Oh, that is mm. that is tough. But is it is it just me, or uh, do you think that if this guy goes home, he might end up uh, sharing the fate of uh, critics of Putin? <laughs> I, I have no idea, of course. But he did go. I, I think he did go back home uh, already. So, and uh, and the only comment from the Vatican was that uh, he also had passed this year, this this age of being seventy five. And at that point, it is customary that you you ask for for you hand over your resignation. But again, normally the Pope, uh, very often at least, the Pope doesn't accept. doesn't accept it. So no, no, stay on, and that's expected. But in this case, I wonder if um, wow. if uh, Frankie didn't uh, give in to Lukashenko. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And if that is the case, that is just so wrong it's it's yeah. it's more than wrong yeah that, that's not that's not good that, that's it's, not good. especially if you consider yourself a moral leader mm-hmm. of some sort mm-hmm. which he does obviously mm. well, right okay. okay that's all about the pope for this week and we'll see what okay. pops up next week well poked <laughs> <laughs> and that means that we are moving on to discussing another interesting topic an important topic which is covid19 Obviously, a lot of people are fed up by now with COVID-19, but we have good news. <laughs> as of today, as of the day of this recording, which is Monday, 
12.3 million vaccine doses have been administered in 30 countries. We've already discussed how amazing it is that the logistics of this could could be pulled off. And that, that is just mind-blowing. Obviously, the USA leads in overall numbers. But Israel leads the in the proportion of the country's population having received the first jab, which is 12.04% as of today. Mm. Imagine that. One, more than one-tenth of the population has already been vaccinated with the first... Yeah, we're not doing that well. I just learned today that Sweden has only received 88,000 doses. Mm. And I don't know how many of them have been administered yet. Mm -hmm. But I think 88,000, that's not too much, is it? Yeah, but... That's too... I thought we would get more by now. Bring them on. Bring them on. We need them. I think it's still, the distribution is still going to be an issue for a while. I mean, it's still amazing that 12.3 million have already been administered. But imagine that on a global scale. Yeah. Producing all that amount of vaccine and shipping it. Because the Pfizer vaccine, which was the first to to be rolled out, it requires technology as well. Mm. So it requires uh, refrigerating technology, which makes it quite difficult to distribute. Yeah, it's it's a great challenge, and uh, yeah. so I'm I'm not uh, I don't want to be the one trying to plan this because this is hard work. Yeah, and that is amazing what they what these people do. But uh, we have to mention that the rollout has been slowed by bureaucracy, and uh, some say that excessive precautions in some cases in some countries. Mm. Uh, one of those countries is uh, is France, where where this is uh, being discussed quite extensively that the government is probably too cautious with this uh, vaccine. So in a way, it makes sense for them to be cautious, right? Right, of course. Because they don't want to rush into something. But since all the scientific levels have been checked, all the science looks good, and those authorities that are responsible for for making sure that the vaccine is safe and it's not getting approval if it's not safe to administer. Those have all all given it the green light. And then bureaucracy can really hinder the rollout. That is probably not the the right way to go. And Germany is leading the way in ordering jabs. But the, the rest of the EU tries to catch up with Germany, apparently. And obviously the UK is is working completely independently of the EU as of now, which might go in favour of the Brexit advocates, because they, they, they can say that, uh, well, without the EU, they are, they are moving much faster in this. Well, it's not a sing- simple argument. It's not a simple issue. So please, if some of our listeners want to ch- uh, chip in, yeah, of course. Do drop us a line if you have an, a formulated opinion on this. But uh, I'm not saying that uh, this is so. I'm saying that this might go in favor of the Brexit people in the eyes of the public. But the UK is rolling out the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccines as well. Yeah. So, so the UK now has three vaccines approved and being used, which is quite an advantage as well. But at the same time, they go, as of today, exactly today, on Monday the 4th, they are going into a strict lockdown at the same time. So things are are not going well at the moment, statistically speaking. So they have to take very, very serious measures. But things are getting hectic all over the place. Countries impose rules, setting up registries. (laughs) But Spain has been criticized lately for their plans to track people who refuse to get vaccinated. Yeah. Which is not necessarily the way you want to to go in times when people's trust has already been lost in governments and monitoring like that just feeds conspiracy theories and you don't want to do that. So obviously the, the issues are many. Uh, there are COVID deniers and the anti-vax sentiment uh, has been growing ever since this, uh, uh, not even even before the, the, the vaccine was ready to, to be administered. New videos are circulating with talking heads of so-called experts. Well, they may be experts, but in some field, some other field, but some of them are practitioners of some sort as well. But they claim that the whole thing is not real. Some even go as far as as denying the existence of the virus itself (sighs) uh, or viruses 
in general, for that matter. So uh, I, I just... Germ uh, theory, again. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, if uh, someone is interested, David Gorski uh, wrote a, a very long but a very informative and interesting article on uh, science-based medicine about the germ theory denial uh, of the of the present day, which is which everyone would have thought that it, it was long over, but apparently is not. And there is a post making rounds claiming it's been shown that uh, pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic COVID-19 patients don't spread the virus, which is bogus. It's absolutely nonsensical. And uh, we will link to the to Snopes article that um, pulls it apart. There is a weird meme claiming Pfizer warns against unprotected sex after vaccination as well. Totally unsubstantiated claim. They never said that anywhere. but. The worst, and I'd like to finish on this with our COVID-19 update, that uh, unfortunately there has been an, uh, a case of a woman in Portugal having a sudden death, which is not unheard of yeah. to die of, of something unknown. and It has to be investigated. But my problem is, and it's going to be our problem, a global problem, but now reports all over the world are mentioning the fact that it was two days after she got the COVID-19 jab. Yeah. And it is now feeding post hoc arguments yeah. about this, saying that... So they just mention it, the two facts, next to each other, and that leads to, in people's mind, the connection being made that, yes, it was because of it. After it, therefore, because of it. So it's a classic post hoc, ergo propter hoc argument. Yeah. Uh, but it will be impossible to get rid of. Yeah, we have exactly the same case in Sweden already. There was one okay. elderly man who died the day after getting the vaccine, but he he was he had multiple health issues before. Yeah, which is why he was also ahead of the queue to get the vaccine, and then he died of a heart attack the day after. And of course, they're now investigating. The problem with that is that not only can you uh, say if it was because of the vaccine, you cannot say that it wasn't either. Yeah, so that's right. probably, I mean, you, how can you tell? You don't know what would have happened to this man if he hadn't gotten the vaccine. And a heart attack is such a generic yeah. uh, reason to die that it's very, very hard to say why that happened. And yeah. this, these things are going to happen because of coincidences. People are going to get run over by a bus the day after they got the vaccine. But you wouldn't argue that the bus was caused by the vaccine. But how about a heart attack? How can you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we, we should uh, say that, I mean, tens of thousands of people have had the vaccine uh, in tests mm -hmm. and there has been no adverse effects found at all. Some allergic and expecting things but none serious so um yeah yeah you never know but it's very hard hard to argue with a exactly a vaccine denier or an anti-vax person about this because they will point and say hey say you can't say that this didn't what that wasn't because of that and therefore i'm going to be extra careful and not take any vaccine yeah but i don't think they stop at that no uh, they they don't say that you can't say that it wasn't wasn't because of that if they say that it it couldn't have been for any other reasons right because the only thing that happened to her was the vaccine yeah. so you're just jumping into conclusions without having the evidence right but this is an issue that we face every day that most people don't think in a way that allows them to appreciate how coincidences happen Right. And they do happen and uh, they jump into conclusions right away and coming up with post hoc arguments. So um, watch out for that and uh, be in the know about that issue. It will probably pop up in your country as well, either in the form of a local case or uh, by referencing that Portuguese case. But let's see what other things we have to talk about this week in terms of news. All right, so we have been busy in the Swedish skeptics because actually today, as we record this, the 4th of January, we announced the Skeptical Awards for 2020, the uh, famous, I hope, enlightener of the year and confounder of the year that we always uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. hand out. And uh, so I want to briefly mention who, mention who, um, who got the prizes. 
the enlightener of the year, let's start with a positive thing, uh, is shared between uh, uh, Professor Osa Wikfors and uh, a, a publisher called uh, Free Tanke, which mean, means free thought. Mm-hmm. Because Osa Wikfors, uh, she wrote a very good book in 2017 called Alternative Facts. And uh, last year, in 2020, she and the publisher decided to hand that out for free to the Swedish secondary schools. Uh, So they have handed out on their own money, (laughs) they've paid for it, 65,000 copies of this book. And it is a very good book. I've read it. Wow. So uh, for that, they got the Enlightener of the Year award for 2020. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Right. Oh, wow. I can even quote the chairman or the president of the Swedish skeptics, Mr. (laughs) Pontus Berkman, because he said in a press release today, we at VOF, which is the Swedish skeptics, Mm -hmm. wholeheartedly applaud Osa Wikfors' efforts to explain the importance of distinguishing between real knowledge and alternative facts. She and the publisher, Free Tanke, have also generously ensured that young students have free access to Vicfors' extraordinarily insightful book on the subject. This makes them obvious recipients of the title Enlighter of the Year. Mm -hmm. Very well put, if I may say so myself. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, you must be very proud to have (laughs) such an eloquent guy. But all all joking aside, I'm very happy about this. Uh, It's very well deserved and it's Mm -hmm. just the kind of thing that we want to encourage. Uh, There is, of course, they will have paid a lot of money to do this out of pocket. Uh, We will contribute a little bit because uh, the award comes with a a 3,000 euro uh, money uh, check as well. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Okay. Then we have the Confounderer of the Year Award. Oh, yeah. and, and I do know for new listeners, Confounderer is not a good translation, but what can you do? It, it sounds fun and now it's sort of established. The Confounderer <laughs> of the Year is a lady called Linda Karlström. Mm-hmm. And she was selected as a representative out of the Swedish uh, anti-vax movement. There is a, a, a growing anti-vaccination movement, not just in Sweden, of course, it's international as well. We talked about it last week as well, about the anti-vax playbook. That that was a good thing, but that really tells you how the anti-vax movement across the globe is coordinating their efforts to spread doubt uh, among um, Mm-hmm. among the general public about vaccines and they've been really gearing up to do this because they've been as we all have they've they've known that there is a new vaccine coming and uh, they have spent all year trying to undermine the confidence for that vaccine even before any vaccine even existed so uh the anti-vax movement is not a formal one thing. I mean, it's a lot of individual players, but uh, this lady, Linda Karlström, has been very visible uh, over the last year. And so she was a fitting recipient of this uh, award. And the president of the Swedish skeptics had the following to say about this. The whole world is now making every effort to deal with the worst pandemic in a hundred years. Meanwhile, the anti-vaccination movement is engaged in spreading doubt and fear regarding a form of treatment that has undoubtedly uh, saved the lives of countless number of people. Now more than ever, it is crucial that we do not let dangerous and harmful delusions obscure from what independent and objective experts agree upon. Vaccines are safe and effective. End quote. Well said by the chairman. Yeah. I'll tell him. Yes. He's well versed in, in things like that. Good. Well, now that we mentioned enlighteners of the year, um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's time for us to hail Edzard Ernst, who's written a new book. <laughs> of course he has. 
<laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think, no, it wasn't a couple of years ago. It was uh, when in 2019, mm-hmm. uh, when the last uh, European Skeptics Congress uh, took place. And we did interview him and he did say that he has plans to release a book every year till the end of his life. And we we did agree that that it we we want a lot of books published by him then, and he he seems to be living up to his word. And now the the latest book, Heilung or the Humbug, Healing or Humbug, a hundred and fifty alternative medicinal uh, medical procedures from acupuncture to yoga. Um, this is the title of the book, and it's in German actually. Mm-hmm. It is published by Springer, or Springer. Or Springer, or I don't know how to say, how to pronounce it. Annika, come back. Andras is getting lost. Yeah, please. I'm getting lost without you, Annika. <laughs> uh, we need your help. So it's probably a very similar book to his other one that was published in English in 2019, Alternative Medicine, a Critical Assessment of 150 Modalities. Mm. So I'm assuming that it's um, it's probably some something like the German version of that. So it uh, explains uh, the background information of alternative medicinal practices uh, and uh, some scientific background as well to to the placebo effect, how the different methods can be assessed by science and uh, and what what are the pros and cons of of the different methods. So uh, I think it must be a very good read. And since there are lots of listeners of uh, this podcast, in Germany. If you haven't heard of, of, of the book yet, then go out and buy it and help the cause. And uh, it will probably be a good handbook on everyone's shelves. So congratulations to Edzernst on keeping up with the enlightening job that, that he does uh, about alternative medicine. Thank you. Yes. And he is a very busy man. He is indeed. Because uh, I have another, uh, another news item about uh, Edzernst. We don't have the James Randi $1 million challenge anymore, which is sad. But we do have uh, Professor Ernst. And uh, he last year issued a challenge uh, of his own towards homeopaths. Mm-hmm. And we talk about how homeopathy contains nothing, which is true. Uh, very often uh, homeopathy, most often homeopathy comes in sugar pills that have been treated with a liquid that is so diluted that the chances of finding anything in that solution at all is practically zero. And that's why it's all nonsense. And that's why we say it's nonsense. Now, since there's nothing in them, it should be impossible to differentiate between different labels uh, of the, these uh, sugar pills, if you remove the label, that yeah, is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that was what Edzard Ernst suggested. He launched his challenge for any homeopath anywhere. I think it was an international challenge. And he made a bet, really, with them. And he said that uh, he would put 2,000 uh, euros uh, put up 2,000 euros and the challenger would put up 2,000 euros. It would be put in an, an in an account not controlled by any of the two. And uh, if the challenger could correctly identify six different homeopathic pills, which was delivered from Edsard Ernst, but handled by a, a, a notary, yeah. trusted notary in, in between, so so that the, the bottles were just labeled one, two, three, four, five, six. And then there was a list of uh, six homeopathic products. And uh, if uh, the homeopath could match the, the correct bottle with the correct name, he would get the, the then 4,000 euro. Uh, can you guess how many accepted this challenge? I would say zero. Yes, it was a homeopathic number of <laughs> people <laughs> That's who, good. who volunteered That's good. to try to do this. Okay. So it is now too late. The, the challenge was open until the end of 2020. And uh, of course, uh, nobody tried. That, that's funny and it's interesting and all of that. I, I, I shall say, though, that I don't see any reason for any homeopath to take that challenge because... They have not very little to gain, except the money, of course. Which is not much for a homeopath. It's, yeah. If they, if they fail, everybody will point the finger at them. And if they win... I mean, it's better not to take the challenge because they can still then they can still go on and say, well, that's just a bogus challenge anyway, and I know that it works. 
So, but it's interesting that nobody felt confident enough to accept the challenge because they seem very confident when you ask them, yeah. do you really know that this works? Yeah. Because it sounds very strange. And they say, yeah, 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 absolutely. It works. So, but okay, will you take this challenge? I, no, I, I, I wonder whether it would have made a, made a difference to offer a larger sum of money by some kind of a supporter or an investor. I don't know. I don't think it would have made such a difference. No, I, I agree. But I do think that for 2,000 euros, that's just pocket money for, for a homeopath. Yeah. Uh, they make such a large amount of money with their fancy practices, just spending that very, very expensively measured time with their patients. So I, I don't think anyone. Yes, and it's too much bother. to lose as well. Yeah, exactly. If you don't succeed, you have lost all your credibility. So, but it's definitely a good publicity stunt. I think uh, yeah. it, it should be much more more widely known. Well. After Ads Ernst, we're still remaining in Germany, where Twitter was all over this uh, piece of news that a German pilot by the name Sammy Kramer used his flight path and he traced a giant syringe. In the sky goes the claim. But yeah, of course, there is a bit of a problem with that. It didn't happen in the sky. So it's, it's not like in, in, no. in animated movies uh, where a, a plane is writing on the sky, a, a big pumping heart or something like that. No, no, no. It's not like that. It wasn't that. But the flight plan could be followed on uh, Flight Radar 24. You probably know that that uh, application. And it's it's pretty good. I think I, I, I use it quite often just for fun. To follow, or when someone uh, in my family fl- flies, then I keep following them, or some, something like that. And when you look at that, the photos show the shape of a syringe drawn out by the flight path, and it's quite perfectly executed. Actually, I'm looking at it now. It's very, very, very well done. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's pretty good for a drawing. But if you consider the fact that he flew that path with an airplane. Uh, it's yeah. it's even better than that. Amazing. And uh, it was a um, a Diamond DA twenty Katana. It, it's um, a lightweight aircraft that that it was uh, flown with at about five thousand feet. And the shape, the size of the syringe in the flight path was about seventy kilometers long. <laughs> so quite impressive. So well done. And he said he did say that uh, why he did that was because he he wanted to draw attention to the importance of vaccination against COVID nineteen. Well, and it's it's important that it comes from a pilot because pilots are among the people who are suffering the most about this this situation uh, because they are out of a job in mm. in in large numbers, really really large numbers. If you consider how how much of the flight traffic has been grounded in the last year, almost a year. It's impossible. And it's it's mind-blowing how many people are out of a job right now. So, yeah, I think it's good that it comes from a, from a pilot. Well done, Sami Kramer. And uh, he, he did this all uh, around Ulm, actually, which is uh, halfway between Stuttgart and, uh, and Munich. Oh, good, nice. So a bit of a fun news item, I think. Mm-hmm. And also then we'll go to a... Uh, we'll end the news section or on a positive note because we've talked about... I, I think I mentioned it last week, how Swedes were not very willing to take the, the COVID yeah. vaccine. Yeah, you did. Well, I have to reverse that because there's a new <laughs> survey that just came back the 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 results came back from the from the company called Novus and it says that uh, 71% of Swedes are positive about taking the new covid vaccine whichever we one we get nice so that's so nice maybe maybe we shouldn't trust polls too much <laughs> uh, like that uh, but uh, anyway i hope this is correct and i hope that people are uh, willing to take uh, to be, get vaccinated i hope they don't listen to the confounder of the year uh, and uh, it looks promising so um, good and we can see that the the change has been rather uh, dramatic because in august the uh, the numbers were 36 mm-hmm. percent said yes i will take the vaccine 
uh, and now and then in November it was forty six percent, and now it's seventy one percent. I guess the, the the one thing that has changed, of course, is that we now we do have a couple of vaccines <laughs> to choose from. There's been a lot of uh, news about it, and I it seems like it's been very positive news. So people don't probably feel that this is very. Uh, rushed mm-hmm. and and uh, they trust the system sort of the the, the process to to produce this uh, is trusted so that's good because we need everybody to get vaccinated okay except of course if you have an allergy or you have a, some other reason where you can't be uh, vaccinated but then you will be protected by all the others that, yeah. that do get yeah, vaccinated yeah yeah, yeah. all right that has been all the news that we had to share with our dear listeners. So we are moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. Yes. On 1st of January. So this is this year already. Somebody had has been really wrong. <laughs> okay. uh, the New York Times published an article with the headline... Britain opens door to mix and match vaccinations, worrying experts, end quote. So mix and match, what does that mean? What they said in the article was that the UK government, in their so-called green book regarding how to handle COVID and vaccinations and such, in that green book it says that it's quite okay to mix the vaccines, meaning that you can take one kind of uh, vaccine for the first jab and then take another oh. uh, as the second jab. So you could take the Pfizer one first and then the Moderna uh, second or something like that. Because all of the vaccines so far, need, you need two jabs. And that sounds really bonkers and really dangerous to me and also to uh, the New York Times, apparently. Uh, because the, this is not something that's been tested or, or on the efficacy or the safety of that. And that's not, never been the idea that you should do it that way. This, so Pfizer and Moderna, they are different enough, but they are both based on mRNA yeah. technology. So that's one, which is a new technology, even though it's not been invented last year. It's been uh, uh, researched for, for at least 10 years, but it's applied here for the first time. And it was not developed developed for this specific purpose. It was mo- mostly used for uh, no, no, it wasn't. Uh, tumors and, and, and that kind of stuff of, right. uh, for, the, for the treatment of those. Right. But then if you look at the uh, Oxford vaccine, mm-hmm. that's completely different. That's more a, of a conventional vaccine, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So I don't see how you can... They are not interchangeable like that. You should take... If you take one the first time, you should take the same the second time as well i i guess they all work on recognizing the the spike protein which is the the famous thing that makes it called the coronavirus but uh, still uh, we shouldn't uh, do that unnecessarily so the uk is crazy right only this is not what the uk green book says okay the new york times <laughs> article they linked to the uk a pdf the official pdf with a green book where you can read all about it but they didn't indicate where in the green book they had read this so i had to read all of it or i skimmed through <laughs> the whole thing to find what they were referring to only that that was stupid by uh, of them but i found something under the header quote previous incomplete vaccination end quote and there, there are recommendations about what to do in certain cases when things have gone wrong in the sense that you don't know what happened. So, and I quote from the Green Book here now. For individuals who started the schedule and who attended for vaccination at a site where the same vaccine is not available or if the first product received is unknown, it is reasonable to offer one dose of the locally available product to complete the schedule. End quote. So it is in case if you don't know what the first jab was, maybe you've moved around or something, then they say in such cases you can make an exception and give whatever is available locally yeah. because they say it's better than not completing any yeah. um, va- vaccination. But it's so because not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same thing. And starting over isn't the same thing either. So, yeah. okay, we don't know if you got this vaccine or another. So you'll get the, uh, the first dose again 
And that, that's that's just as wrong. So I think this is sensible. It's just made it's supposed to happen in exceptional cases when you don't know what happened with the first dose. And so the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, they reached out to the New York Times and demanded that they correct uh, the impression that their uh, head uh, headline is saying. So um, they urged the New York Times to print a, a quote highly visible correction end quote and as soon as possible, which at the, the point of this recording, as far as I can see. Uh, the New York Times have not done. Okay. So, uh, not normally I, I give a, a, a really wrong to someone from outside of Europe, because but since this was about Europe, uh, I will do this this week. And for falsely claiming that UK recommends a mix and match of different COVID vaccines, the New York Times gets today's prize for being really wrong. And what we do not need right now is any more confusion regarding yeah. vaccinations yes. and especially not from sources that most people regard as uh, you know normally reliable and yeah. established yeah i think this this should be a new category by now normally reliable <laughs> but <laughs> yes occasionally uh, slipping occasionally um, reliable yeah yeah once in a while, they say something right. Yeah, that's a different category. Yeah, yeah. Once in a while, they say something right. Okay. Right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And that basically concludes the show, which will be finished with a quote, as usual. And the quote comes from Stephen Hawking, whose birthday is on the same day as that of Alfred Russell Wallace's. Not same year, though. Not the same year, and yes, that's right. And unfortunately, <laughs> two years ago, he passed away. But he did yeah. live up to 76 years old, which, uh, considering his uh, condition, uh, was absolutely amazing. And it was totally unexpected, even by him. <laughs> He's, he was diagnosed uh, in his 20s, and then he lived another more than 50 years. So Yeah, I think the, the, fir really the first uh, indication was that he had maybe eight or ten years yes, to live. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, but, um, yeah. And I think this quote is, is specifically important because in the time of uh, a global crisis of, of things that we need to do together, it is very important what he says. And do bear in mind that he had a difficult a very difficult time trying to speak and trying to communicate with the world. So, for millions of years, mankind lived just like the animals. Then something happened which unleashed the power of our imagination. We learned to talk and we learned to listen. Speech has allowed the communication of ideas, enabling human beings to work together to build the impossible. Mankind's greatest achievements have come about by talking and its greatest failures by not talking. It doesn't have to be like this. Our greatest hopes could become reality in the future. With the technology at our disposal, the possibilities are unbounded. All we need to do is make sure we keep talking. <laughs> right. That, that's very interesting. And, and I couldn't help by thinking about him saying that in his voice, which yes. was the mechanical voice that he had to help him speak. Uh, I'm glad you didn't try to mimic that. I would maybe uh, not have gone as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, it's in, it, it gives it a special um, uh, feeling for me anyway to, to hear him talk about talking when he himself had such a yeah. difficulty of, of doing that. But of course, I, I know what he means. He means not just talking, but also writing and communicating. Communicating. Communicating and yeah. and sharing yeah, yeah. our ideas and working together in in solving issues, uh, solving problems. Mm. Uh, yes, this is why I chose this, and this is what we are trying to do here. Uh, we are trying to to work as a hub, as as a as a meeting place, as as of of different cultures, of different sharing different uh, ideas and problems. So uh, as long as we have our listeners, we will keep talking. <laughs> Yeah, we, and we do like to talk, as you may have noticed. Yes. <laughs> but for now, <laughs> this has been all for this week. 
Thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me in talking. Thank you, Anders. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Hello. Bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe that I would be giving a talk at Montreal County Skepticamp. 2021, You jingle, yeah? Yeah.